For those joining us online, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message entitled, Therefore Pray Ye, Christ's Pattern for Effective Prayer. And we'll invite you to follow along with us in your Bible, if you have that handy, in the book of Matthew, chapter number 6. We'll be studying together verses 9 through 15. And at the end of our time in the scriptures this morning, I'm going to ask that each of us have just a brief time of prayer together. As we come to the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter number 6, we continue the studies in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. We read these words of our Savior, who says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Hence my title, Therefore, Pray Ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lord, I humbly bow before you in amazement. I am marveled at the thought that I can even come into your very presence. Knowing myself, Lord, and knowing that you know me even better than I know me, Lord, to be in your presence amazes me. I could have no means to be here if it weren't for my Savior and His shed blood who uttered these precious words to give me a pattern that I might follow and model my prayers after, Lord. And many times this has helped me to grow in my communication with You. And Lord, we've learned already at the feet of Jesus what it is to enter into a prayer closet and to pray privately. But now, Lord... You address with your disciples this matter of praying together corporately, as I know in the plurality that you address here, our Father, and we do call you our Father here this morning. I do not know if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that doesn't know Jesus as Savior. If that's the case, then Lord, may they come to know you through Him, as I have, to be their Heavenly Father as well, that they can truly say this prayer our Father in heaven. And Lord, thank you. I pray that you'll take your word now and accomplish your purpose. Empty me of self. Cleanse me of sin. Use me for your service and fill me, Lord, with your spirit and power. And I'll thank you for doing what I can't do. In my weakness, may your strength be made known. And may my feeble words lead to your infinite word that's all-powerful to stir our heart and draw us to Christ. Molding us after His image, in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. D.L. Moody in his Bible had this thought, and he wrote this down in, in a, a book called uh, A Living Daily Message from the Words of D.L. Moody. He wrote this statement. If you ask me why God should love us, I cannot tell. I suppose it is because He is a true Father. It is His nature to love just as it is the nature of the sun to shine. You asking me, why does God love me? I cannot tell. 
I do not know, D.L. Moody said. I've contemplated that thought in my own mind many times. Why, Lord? Why? Why would you look down on someone like me and consider me? I think if we'll look at what the Lord says here in these verses, though brief they are, they give us so, such a powerful working, inner working of prayer, not just the mechanics of it. Because mechanics lead to dryness and a pharisaical pursuit. Legalism and all of those things are the inroad of a Pharisee. Spiritual on the outside looking, but not in the inward changed. And so as we consider these words, I hope that it will make a difference to our church. I hope after spending time with this passage, you know, this is the first time our church has actually come to this and really expounded these verses together. And my prayer as a pastor is that after looking at these as a church family, we'll know better how to pray corporately together. That when prayers are offered in a corporate setting in our church, whether it's every Wednesday night when we do our prayer meeting, or whether it's every opening prayer we have, or the spirit of prayer we carry through all of our services, when we assemble and come out from the world and gather together, we are saying something. We're saying something to this apartment complex. We're saying something to the surrounding community. Yes, we're saying something even to those that are running a race, that we're not going to close down church. We're still going to meet. Even if you're having a race, go have your race, but we're going to have church. Amen? And we're going to be here. One person said this. He said that the greatest, the single greatest countercultural act that Christians perform, listen now, is to worship together and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. How countercultural is that? You don't believe me? Just walk down the streets of New York City right there by Times Square and let's try to get an assembly together of Christians and go out and see how weird we are and see how much we stand out there on Times Square, everybody bustling, going back and forth in their, in their commerce. And so this writer went on to say, I think I said he a minute ago, I think it was a she that wrote this, to cease from the constant round of commerce and consumption, to resist the manipulation of media that insists that working and, and possessing define worth, and to proclaim with the body language of communal gathering that Jesus, not any other power, Jesus, not any other power, is Lord, is to enact the politics of God's kingdom and to embody the prayer, Thy kingdom come. And so what we do here today is we assemble and we gather together. Now I understand, I believe this writer to come from a covenant uh, perspective and her theological workings, but uh, I'm a dispensationalist, and so I do, uh, I do take a different approach on where the kingdom of God is and, and where that kingdom is coming and what we're doing as, as a church. Uh, we have not replaced Israel. God still has a plan for Israel, a program for that, but make no mistake, God's modus operandi today is to work and move in and through His local church, His assembly. What is a local church? It's a called-out body of believers Assembled together for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the saints, for the promotion and the preaching of the gospel. That's what a local church is, for the fellowship that we have. And so by doing this, how countercultural is that? Uh, we're saying that the church is not a, your, your next social club. It's a place where we can assemble and proclaim to the world, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I hope that our church will learn something. You know, coming to a passage like this may be like driving by those Rocky Mountains every time you go by them. How many people drive for thousands and thousands of miles just to come see the beauty of what we drive by every day? And so here we have these beautiful 
uh, monumental words of our Lord. Luke tells us that he was approached in this regard. And when he taught on prayer in Luke's account, you see that his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. John's teaching his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. And so he gives them a little bit of this teaching in Luke's account, which is, I believe, a different teaching on, on this same kind of idea of prayer. But here we have the most full aspect of it by, given by Matthew. And as we think about learning how to be a praying church, we need to learn how to pray as a church together, corporately. And Jesus said later on in the same gospel account here that where two or three are gathered in His name, there He is in the midst. And when we corporately gather together and invoke the name of Jesus Christ on our prayers, we can see God move. So as we do our prayers, and as we pray together as a church, not just praying in your closet now, we've covered that, and we need to be real with God, and it's in that secret place where He sees and He answers openly. That's in our private walk, and I make that distinction because of the pronouns in the passage. If you read Matthew 5, Matthew 6 here, you'll see it goes from singular to plural, and if you have a King James Bible... Okay, I'll, I'll go this other way. If you have an ESV or something of that nature, then you need to learn Greek. Because that's the only way you're going to see the distinction between the singular and the plural. Okay, But if you have a King James Bible, you don't need to learn Greek. It's a window. And you, as an English speaker, you have it right here, singular and plural, easily detected between the Y's and the T's. Know that as you read chapter 6. And it will help you see. The prayer closet is when thou prayest. Singular. The Father will reward thee, singular, openly. And we need people in the place of prayer. Individuals who are committed. Prayer warriors. Praying the Word of God. But, Jesus Christ goes on here to say, in a plural sense, when ye pray, therefore pray ye. Not therefore pray thou. Pray ye. And so as we gather together, how do we formulate our prayers? How do we communicate with God corporately. If we'll stay with the pattern, we'll protect the integrity of the product of our prayers. Think that statement through. We've got to stay with the pattern to protect the integrity of the product of our prayers. I take the Lord's, well, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, I take it as pattern. I do not take it as a rote set of words that we repeat all the time. Uh, you can say them as much as you want, uh, as long as they don't become vain babbling. If you mean what you're saying, by all means, this is a place to start. Say these words until it sinks into your heart, but don't be guilty of vain babbling because Jesus just corrected that in the same passage, did he not? So if we're not guilty of vain babbling, and we're going to come together for prayer. We're going to say, Our Father, which art in heaven. And we begin those words. This gives us a pattern. Now, I like to do woodworking. I'm not very good at it, but I try. I like to do woodworking. There are many people that are better than me. But when I do any woodworking, I like to have a pattern. I, I do. I like to have a template, something to follow. And even then, I don't get it right. But I get it close. And, uh, and so... As I approach this prayer, I want to do so with the same kind of mindset that, Lord, this is the pattern. Help me to cut it straight. You know, maybe you work with fabric, and you've got to take and mark that fabric out. I grew up working in a upholstery shop, and 
You know, I got the fun part. It was always easy to tear it up. Now, my dad had to put it all back together again, and that's probably why uh, we had so many problems. No, I'm just kidding. He, he would give me a tool and turn me loose and say, just don't hurt yourself or anybody else and go to town and tear the thing up. Just don't tear this part up. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'll do my best pulling staples and all that. Well, my grandmother was the was the one that held it all together. She was uh, she was really a matriarch of the family uh, in many ways for many many years before my grandfather finally came along and, and stood in that place of being our patriarch. But she knew the Lord, loved the Lord, but she was a seamstress like none other. And she uh, she sewed during the depression. That'll tell you uh, she had a job, you know, doing the doing the sweatshops and the factories and all that. And she'd go just work her fingers to the bones for just pennies and and just enough to get bread and morsels to live and to be able to make their clothes and things. And she knew how to run a... I mean, she could thread that sewing machine blindfolded. Uh, with behind Her hands tied behind her back. She could do it with her toes. I'm just kidding. But she was amazing with that singer. And she had a great machine there. But, you know, I would tear it up and then we would have patterns and, and then we would draw those patterns out and she'd get that thing underneath the underneath the sewing machine, zip it right through and she'd be right on target, right on line. Then we'd take that fabric, she would sew and stitch and we'd flip it and we'd stuff it and then we'd put it together and before long we've got a beautiful piece of art, whether it's a, an RV we were working on or a classic car we were reupholstering or, or a, a couch or a chair or whatever it was. It didn't matter the, the piece of equipment. We got through, and because we followed the pattern, we were able to accomplish what we needed to. So as we think about the product of prayer, this prayer, Jesus gave this prayer to His disciples to accomplish something special and precious. And if we'll follow the pattern, we'll protect the integrity of the outcome of what this prayer, I believe, is intended to produce. And so you have this jotted down in your notes, and I just want to call it out to your attention so you can meditate on it and make sure that I'm on target with what I'm doing here with the Scriptures. See if I'm cutting this straight. See if you can see the same thing that I do here when I give you this statement. Jesus' instruction to His disciples provided them a pattern for corporate prayer, which helps us maintain a proper course for effective communication with God. Underline this last statement. Prayer ought to produce change foremost in us. Jesus has been talking about how we ought to worship. And He's talked about our alms. That we should do those properly in our charitable giving and our actions that we do and our stewardship of that. He's talked about private prayer. Now He moves to corporate prayer. Notice with me in this pattern of prayer, I see two major sections. And then an exposition or an explanation, if you will. So these two major sections really give us our outline and it's easy to follow. Uh, if you don't like my alliteration, then come up with a better word. I'll steal it from you and we'll use it in the outline. Amen? <laughs> the first part that I see here in verses 9 and 10 deals with addressing our Father. Addressing our Father. And I think that's the right place to start. So many times we make an end run and we begin with our laundry list, right? And so, okay, Lord, I, okay, I don't have a lot of time. I just need to get this to Let's stop long enough, especially when we're praying corporately. Uh, Mr. Arnie Nelson taught astronomy in college when I took that class. One of the things that impressed me about that man, that drew me to him just from the very first day of class, he wasn't afraid of silence and he would stand behind the lectern in the credenza and before we would ever begin anything in class, he would have just a moment. And I believe his words would go something like this. God in heaven. 
And that's how he would begin. And immediately, I was transported in my mind to the very throne room of God. I remember in chapel, there was a preacher that came through. Uh, many of you might be familiar with his ministry, Rick Flanders. He has a revival ministry. And he's a great preacher, tremendous preacher of the Word of God. I love Dr. Flanders. He came and he would preach in chapel. And I remember watching him pray because he did things a little differently than what I have observed before. And you know, we pray, and, and right now we're praying, Lord, please comfort that screaming child. <laughs> uh, he would, you know, we pray, and, and like we do, like we teach our children, we teach our children in our home, bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. Well, Dr. Flanders approached the sacred desk in our chapel time, and without batting an eye, he just looked directly up, almost like he was looking through the angelic voices there in the, in the crown center, and just looked right through the ceiling, and almost pierced the clouds through until you knew who he was talking to. He, he didn't bow his head and close his eyes. He approached, and this man was so full of the Holy Spirit, he just went right to God, and in the very throne room, approached him and prayed. Now, I don't know, I, I would like to pretend that I'm filled with the Spirit enough to do that, I still think I need to humble myself and bow my head until I feel confident enough to pierce the clouds and say, Lord, you can look down on me. Uh, and so that's just, a, that's just some impressions that I've gotten from people that have led corporate prayers that I've been able to notice. Welcome to our house. Amen. <laughs> Addressing our Father. Addressing our Father. Notice the pattern for our praying. And this is taken from the words in verse number 9. After this manner. After this manner. The word literally is this. You can translate it this. So in this way, after this manner, pray. This gives us the pattern. This is not according to some formula. This is a pattern to follow. Not a set uh, set thing of words, alright? Let me give you another illustration here. Some flavors are unmistakable and they define different entire kinds of foods, okay? For instance, if I start saying these ingredients, now listen listen carefully to me now, over here, okay, these ingredients, unmistakable flavors, okay? I start talking about tomato, basil, garlic, some of you are already, for lunch, already ready for lunch. And so, you're thinking of your favorite Italian restaurant right now, aren't you? Okay, now what if I change gears and I say uh, cilantro and onion and tomato and jalapeno? Well, then you'd say, well, Pastor, you're talking about some really good salsa right there. I mean, that's a totally different world, you know, the place in the world, right? The, you know, Italian versus the, the, the salsa. Okay, what about this one? This, one, uh, this one's going to be hard for me. The smell of white rice, ginger, and tuna. Well, if you're a true sushi lover, then you're salivating right now. I'm not. Because <laughs> I'm not a true sushi lover. But some people are, and they would be salivating. Just hearing those words, white rice and, uh, and, and ginger and tuna, and that's all you need. And they're, they're, they're salivating. As we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ is basically giving us here, I believe, some ingredients to make sure we have in our prayers as we follow this pattern, as we cut it straight. Notice he tells us of the person to whom we pray. And I emphasize we 
because uh, as many of the commentaries point out, I don't need to belabor this, you can read many of their writings and I agree with them, whether it's uh, Ironside or, or McGee or Boyce or, I mean, just commentary after commentary, Wearsby, they all basically say the same thing and I agree with them, that this is a prayer that is given to disciples, not to unsaved people. So the argument that there's a universal fatherhood of God doesn't hold any water with this in the context. All right, we are not universalists, we are Trinitarians. And I even hesitatingly use the word Trinity because my preference is to say the term triune Godhead. Because that is a biblical term, that is a scriptural term. You won't find the word Trinity in your Bible. But you will find the concept of the Trinity, the three in one, the triune Godhead. And so we're not Unitarians. We don't believe there's a universal fatherhood of God and a universal brotherhood of man. Now we're all neighbors. We're all neighbors. And we need to love each other as neighbors should. But there's, there's only one kind of person that can call God truly their Heavenly Father. And that is a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Old Testament or New. They're believers, not unbelievers. And so... We see uh, this is the Father that we address, the person to whom we pray. D.L. Moody, again, in, in his uh, thoughts, 1,001 Thoughts from My Library, he said this, There's one thing more pitiable, almost worse, than even cold, black, miserable atheism. To kneel down and say, Our Father, and then to get up and live an orphaned life. I think those are powerful words. To stand and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then to go fretting and fearing, saying a thousand tongues, I believe in the love of God, but is only in heaven. I believe the power of God, but stop it short of the stars. I believe the providence of God, but it's limited to the saints in the Scripture. I believe the Lord reigneth only with reference to some far off time, which we have nothing to do. That is more insulting to our Heavenly Father, the Moody said, more harmful to the world, more cheating to ourselves than to have God at all. As we approach this person, this Father, our Father, what an endearing term, the adoration of our Father in Heaven, the love that we have toward Him. Notice, we're pointing to His transcendence. Our Father in Heaven. The addition of Heaven tells of God's transcendence. And what I mean by that is He is over all and above all. And yet in this same passage, we're going to see He's concerned even about the sparrows and the very hair of our head. They're all numbered. Every one of them. And every one that we used to have that we don't have now. And every one that's turning great. And so He's got all of those numbers. But He's in heaven and He's transcendent. So as we approach Him by saying, Our Father which art in heaven, what we are doing is we are looking to the Almighty God, the Most High God. There is none higher. The Omnipotent One who inhabits eternity, who dwells with those who are of a contrite spirit, full of splendor and power and glory, and yet He cares so deeply for our needs. Our Father, which art in heaven, then we're pointed to His holiness. Hallowed be Thy name. And this, as one person said, is the first God-oriented petition. Remember, we're talking about addressing our Father in this section of the prayer, the model. And it's that sacredness of God's name. When, when you're reading the Old Testament and you see someone's name mentioned, 
immediately that invokes the idea of the whole person. And so the name of God, as we, as we pray for that to be holy, what we're praying is really to acknowledge His whole presence and Himself being holy because His name represents all that He is. Now, as I studied this, I was immediately drawn to all the imperatives. And so this first section has three major imperatives that are given. And it's seen in these words, now our Father, that is evocative, that is addressing. And then after we see the words, our Father, He says, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name is an imperative. In other words, let your name be holy. This is a command. It's an imperative statement. Let your name be holy. There are three. One is a, a two are passive and one is an active. Let me see if I can keep it straight in my head to give it to you here correctly. In verse number nine, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, number one, passive, imperative, hallowed be thy name. Let your name be holy. Active, thy kingdom come. That is an active imperative. Thy will be done in heaven, uh, in earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done is the other passive. So we have a passive, an active, and a passive. So sandwiched in between that is the active, thy kingdom come. Now I've lost you in all the finer details. I've got to try to get you back here somehow. Pray for me. Uh, the passiveness of this, some have even argued, could it be a divine passive? And what we mean by that is that God is the one who, who makes this happen. I think there's no other way that it can be. Because as God's working out His plan of redemption, isn't this the ultimate goal? Doesn't it fall in line with our prayer to pray, Thy kingdom come? Doesn't it line up with Thy will be done? We're praying for the return of Christ so that He can rule and reign on this earth. A reign of peace for a thousand years. And then we enter into that eternal bliss that we sing about that we know so little about in comparison to the millennial reign. And yet it's that hope of heaven, the believer's hope, and the hope of our soul. And so one day this is going to be answered fully and finally. All the world will again acknowledge the holiness of our God and the one whom we serve. Two times in human history when uh, this has been the case for all known mankind. If you've gone through discipleship with me, you've heard me say this before. Adam and Eve in the garden, all mankind, this prayer could have been said to be true at that moment because all mankind revered and honored the name of God. And then when Noah stepped off the ark, the eight souls that were with him before the population exploded again, like it's doing here in Denver, uh, everywhere I go, there's so many cars, hey, more ministry opportunities, amen. And more, more uh, trials for your faith. Yeah, amen. Some of you are relating with that. I don't know anything about that. Okay. So as we think about this being our Father and this divine passive perhaps that's here, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're praying that this would be. Let it come, Lord. Let this be. As we gather corporately, we pray, Lord, you are the only one and you are holy and we worship you and you alone. You, none is higher than you. You are the God that we come to. And then we say, we're looking for you to come and do what we can do. Bring your kingdom to this earth, Lord. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. There's an old Roman story which tells how a Roman emperor was enjoying triumph 
And if you know Roman history, uh, he had the privilege, which Rome gave to her great victors, of marching his troops through the streets of Rome with all his captured trophies and his prisoners in his train. So the emperor was on the march here with his troops. And the streets were lined, you know, cheering people all along the way. The tall legionnaires, they lined the streets' edges to keep the people in their places. And at one point in the triumphal route, there was a little platform where the empress and her family were sitting to watch the emperor go by in all the pride of his triumph. And on that platform, with his mother, there was the emperor's youngest son, just a little boy. And as the emperor came near, the little boy jumped off the platform. He burrowed through the crowd. He tried to dodge between the legs of the legionary and to run out onto the road to meet his father's chariot. The legionary, uh, he stooped down and he caught that young boy. He swung him up in his arms. You can't do that, boy, he said. Don't you know who that is in that chariot? That's the emperor. You can't run out to his chariot. And the little boy laughed down as being held up by this legionary. He may be your emperor, he said, but he's my father. And this, this is exactly the way that we feel when we come to God, right? What right do I have to be in his presence? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4.16 says we can come boldly under the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And J.G. Whittier's hymn has it like this. I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. Robert Browning, he triumphantly declared his faith in the lines from Paracelsus, God, thou art love. I build my faith on that. I know thee who has kept my path and made light for me in the darkness, tempering sorrow so that it reached me like a solemn joy. It were too strange that I should doubt thy love. Too strange, he says, that I should doubt thy love. Paul said it like this in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? No one can look at the cross of Christ and doubt the love of God. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When we're sure of the love of God, it's a little bit easier to say, Thy will be done. Thy will, not my will. Notice not only the person to whom we pray, we see His transcendence, His holiness, following this pattern that we are to pray. Thirdly, in this section, we see God's purposes are to become our priority. God's purposes are to become our priority. This comes through an acknowledgement of His kingdom, and it becomes. It also comes through an achievement of His will. Let me look at these two ideas with you, and we'll be done. Jesus continues this pattern. He says, after this manner, pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Old Vance Havner told a story about a, a novel that enthralled him, a little mountain community, and it's, the name of this mountain community was called Kingdom Come. I don't know if anybody knows where Kingdom Come is. I, I think I've heard that name before. There's a little town called Kingdom Come, and you can actually go there and, and, and be in Kingdom Come. And he says, he's thinking, you know, old Vance Havner just had a way with words, and he said, I'm thinking now of a far more wonderful Kingdom Come. 
We're living at a present kingdom in the kingdom of this world. And it began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but sin entered and wrecked that kingdom. It's still a wreck. Amen, Dr. Hacker. It hasn't changed much since you much since you left and went home to glory. It's gotten probably much worse, and you would probably roll over in your grave if you knew half of what was going on today, Dr. Abner. He says the, the creatures creep about in fear. The loveliest natural scene is deceptive because underneath there's bloodshed and terror. Creatures creeping about in fear. Birds looking nervously in all directions. Snakes gliding in the grass. The rain of tooth and claw still prevails. Everything is under the curse. The earth is rent by sin and strife, wars and rumors of war, wars. We may send men to the moon, but we cannot solve the problems of earth. And now we're trying to get to Mars, and we still can't even solve our own problems. And the kingdom of this world is a failure because of the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. This statement, this statement right here says it all. Dr. Havner said, science does not have the answer to sin. We still haven't figured it out. So-called civilization carries the seeds of moral cancer in its heart. And it will never hold out morally and spiritually to do what it hopes to do scientifically. Man is not evolving upward toward God. He started with the knowledge of God, but denied Him and has been living in rebellion ever since. He tries to build heaven without God, but His towers of Babel come crashing around His head. For except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth until now, Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Any man who's a citizen of this world only is a citizen of a kingdom doomed to die. The kingdom of this world is under the power of Satan, the arch rebel who rebelled against God. He revolted against God. Jesus Himself said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He doesn't own it. He stole it. It's not His by right. It's His by theft. But the devil has it. And He offered the kingdoms of this world to our Lord when He walked this earth. And Christ denied that and said, it's not, uh, you shouldn't tempt the Lord thy God. He does possess it temporarily. The devil does. And then Dr. Havner went on to say, God long ago sent His Son to tell us about the kingdom of God. This kingdom to come. This is the kingdom for which we look. Here's the greatest of all race issues. Dr. Havner said whether we belong to the new race or only to the old sinful humanity. Are we part of the new race? I'm a a believer in race. Now hold on a minute. There's only one. I just woke you up, didn't I? What color is your blood? (laughs) Trick question. Depending on which side of the heart it's on. It's all the same. We all believe the same color. Now we might have different ethnicities different cultures, different backgrounds. But we are one human race. There is but one race. And Jesus Christ died for every soul that's part of that race, the human race. Dr. A.J. Gordon, he used to put it like this. The age to come is the resurrection age. The time of the redemption of the body. We know the powers of that age not simply by prediction and promise, But he says by experience. Every miracle is a foretaste thereof. A sign of its universal healing and restitution. The driftwood and floating vegetation which met the eye of Columbus as he was keeping a lookout upon his ship assured him of the proximity of the new world which he was seeking. 
hey, there's a road I'm drifting by. We must be getting close to land somewhere. We see these little signs along the way. Hey, there's no, we must be getting close along the way. Today, we say long. His study, Columbus, that is, his study of geography had assured him of the existence of that world. But now he had tasted its powers. He saw and handled its actual first fruits. So it is with us voyagers to the world to come. The millennial age. The time of the restitution of all things. As those who have known and credited our Lord's miracles while on earth or have experienced the wonders of recovery which He has wrought and still stretches out His hand to heal, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not only will it be the acknowledgement of His kingdom and praying for that to come, Lord, we just need You. We need You to bring this to pass. And let us see just a little token, just a little sign here now of what we hope and dream about there and then. Not only through the acknowledgement of His kingdom, but the achievement of His will. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Dr. Jim Van Gelderen shared with me in a private prayer meeting uh, one time about this, this idea and it stuck with me and I've I, I really appreciated his comments on this. He pointed out that there's three things that can limit and hinder the will of God being done on this earth. And scripturally, that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when we're praying for God's will to be done in earth as it is in heaven, that signifies that there's nothing there in the realm of heaven that would, that would hinder, that would thwart what God desires will be done and will be unhindered. But here among this fallen world, there are enemies that we face that would thwart the will of God being done. Why would we need to pray this if God is all sovereign? Because there is a will that exerts itself. Now God is sovereign and in the end He will win. But temporarily we can limit Him and we can, we can experience a death and we can experience destruction. And so Jesus says pray for the achievement of His will. God's will for us is always best. It's always safe. There's no risk to be run here. Old G.W. Truett preached one time in a meeting he was holding. And he used the illustration of General Jackson. I like to read about uh, those generals from the Civil War. And I'm reading a, a biography about Robert E. Lee right now that has just opened my eyes in ways that I, I've learned to come to know the man in ways that I, I never knew him before. I always knew him as a general. I didn't know how he got to that point and the decision that he made to stand by Virginia. It wasn't about the South. It was about Virginia for him. And that was what made him decide to go with the go with the Confederacy rather than the Union. He was a torn man. He was a torn man over that whole decision. But one of the greatest generals of that day, it was a long road for him. One of his best generals, General Jackson, dying yonder at Chancellorsville, old G.W. Truett said, he said, uh, he had exactly the right word to say to the surgeon and others that came around him, wounded, you know, to his death by one of his own men, he was the calmest man in that little group as he laid under the shade of the trees, dying at Chancellorsville. The doctor was greatly disconcerted and nervous, and so were the officers. And General Jackson quietly said, Why, be calm, man. If I live, it'll be for the best. And if I die, it'll be for the best. God knows and directs all things for the best for those who trust Him and love Him. And I trust Him and I love Him, said the great Jackson. And went on to be with God. 
And that is the way to die, according to old Dr. Truitt, who gave his life, by the way, preaching through the Second World War. Robert Law said this, Prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in earth. We understand a little better now, hopefully, how we should address our Heavenly Father. 